Our Father, we are grateful that you, in your kindness, draw us together to worship you, and then, Lord, because of your goodness, you push us out into the world to be salt and light. And I pray that our time together this, together this morning would be a small help in that. And if that happens, Lord, we know it will be the gift of your Holy Spirit, and we'll be quick to give you thanks and praise. Bless Advent Cathedral and these folks who are here. May the teacher this morning be clear, and may those who hear, Lord, have hearts and minds to listen. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Um, okay, so what we might, today's our wrap-up day, um, and I do another series with you all in October, beginning on the 7th, and I think we might move from this into something that will lead quite naturally into some discussions about some larger themes in the minor prophets. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch on that a little bit this morning, um, but before, before we do that, two introductory thoughts, and, and, and I hope to take some time at the end of our uh, today to have, have some Q&A. We haven't had a lot of time for that the past few weeks. Um, but one thing, and it was interesting, I, I had the book in hand this morning, and I was going to bring it to read you something from it, and then I thought, oh, you don't have enough time, don't, don't do that. Um, but, I, but I've noticed that your reading group here at Avon is reading through Marilyn Robinson's um, When I Was a Child, I Read Books. Who's doing that? There's the elect, all two of you. <laughs> um, well, it's, I commend this book to you. I saw it in your bookstore. Um, Marilyn Robinson is an, uh, she's just an unusual woman. Um, she's written Pulitzer Prize winning novel entitled Gilead, which I actually commend to all of you. Um, and then she wrote, wrote a follow up one to that that wasn't quite as, I mean, that, called Home. And that, that was actually a, it was a beautiful book, but very difficult, actually, th- thematically. Um, but she's, she's turned to essay writings. I actually had the privilege, um, this sounds like name dropping, but forgive me. But I had the privilege uh, two summers ago to be involved in a small theology w- writer's workshop in Princeton at the, at, the, at the Center of Theological Inquiry where Marilyn Robinson led our small group of ten folks. And so we spent three weeks with her. And she's, she really is an astounding woman. But the reason why I bring her up is there's a sense, and I, I'm picking and choosing my reading through this book, but there's a, there's a large sense in which the themes that we've been talking about these past few weeks are really present in, in Robinson and the essays that she brings in, in those books. I'm reading through her chapter right, right now entitled The Fate of the Idea of Moses. And it's, it's actually, I mean, it's, it's, it's basically a, a, a full throttled, double barrel blast against Marcionite tendencies within both the church and within, I think, larger culture, people who dismiss. Uh, um, the Old Testament as something that's barbaric. And she's showing, well, there's a lot more here. We can all find those texts if we want them, but you know, she's opening up Moses in a way that I think might be actually surprising. Um, so people who know Robinson as a teacher at the Writers Fellowship in Iowa or the Writers Workshop at the University of Iowa, premier workshop in, in the U.S. actually on, on writing, um, and they've seen her on TV, and she, she's, you know, I think they expect a certain kind of for lack of a better term, Barnes and Noble approach to Christianity, um, and then when they hear, her, they're like, "That's that's a little that's strong." Um, and one of, one of her great passions is both um, a rescuing of Calvin, right, from from pe- from the naysayers, and a rescuing of the Old Testament. So I, I commend it to you. And what I was going to read to you this morning, because it has to do with some of the things that we're going to talk about, is. Um, her comments that people who are the detractors of the Old Testament forget, even those who are sympathetic to the Old Testament forget, that the only reason we have a record of the kind of 
horrible interaction, this lover's quarrel between Yahweh and Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, the only reason we have that is because of the ability and the willingness of the authors of the Bible to be self-accusatory. I mean, that, you, you, you won't find that in the comparative literature of the ancient Near East. You know, you're, you're going to find bravado. You're going to find machismo. Right? You're going to find hyperbole off the charts when it comes to the way in which they interacted with the nations and their gods. That, that's what you're going to find. But it's, it's actually an astounding thing to read the Old Testament. And we're going to talk about this, that this morning. And to see that here are Israelites. Well, and we'll go ahead and use the term even anachronistically. Here are, are Jews right, who are uh, writing in such a way to be self-accusatory and to recognize that the failure that has come on to them, the trouble that has come on to them, is because they have not kept covenant with their God. I mean, they're, they're willing to, to, to reveal that about themselves. It's actually quite astounding. Robinson's very good at, at unpacking that. So I, I commend that book to you. Warning. Right? It's a warning. She's not easy. Right? I mean, those of you who have read her before, it's not, you know, it's not, um, it's not Max Lucado. All right? um, although that's, that's okay, too. My son... Came from Sunday school last week, jazzed up about a Max Lucado book, and we bought it in the bookstore. So Max Lucado is fine, but this is a—it's hard reading. Okay, so I'm warning on that, but I commend it to you. The second thing, and I—I don't know. This is going to open up a can of worms. Uh, Jim uh, Goyer mentioned this to me beforehand, and, and I avoided it last week. I probably wanted to avoid it this week. But what do we do when we come to something like Exodus 33, where? Um, Moses prays, and then the Bible uses this language, and God repented. God relented. Or let's put it in our common vernacular, right? God changed his mind. Right. Well, I mean, that, does that bother you? Okay, well, if it, let's move on. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, the, these are difficult matters, without doubt. I mean, and, and this is one of the things that I think we have to wrestle with as we read the Bible, which is in the historical character of the Bible, which is something that takes place in time and space, in a linear movement of time and space that's observable, that's recountable, that someone can give a chronicle of something that occurred on a linear movement of time and space. Okay? And in that reality, from that observable reality, we do know that it does seem at times, and it is true to say at times, that God changes His mind. I mean, we're going to go to Jonah this morning for just a little bit, but we won't talk about this part. But you remember this, don't you, in Jonah? Jonah, it's a great book. You go to Nineveh. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go to Tarshish. The only prophet, by the way, in the Old Testament who does something like that. I mean, what you have to write, all the prophets is, and God told Jeremiah, go and say this. Next verse. And he did that, right? But Jonah doesn't do that. He goes to Tarshish, and then he gets swallowed by a whale, da-da-da-da-da, and then he's back there again. And he goes, and do you remember the sermon that Jonah preached? It has to be the shortest sermon in history. Right? Um, Forty days in Nineveh will be destroyed. That was the sermon. But did you notice what wasn't present in that sermon? You know, there wasn't a call to repentance there. There, there wasn't the, the challenge, um, 40 days you're going to be destroyed unless you do this, 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 and this, right? It, it doesn't say any of that. It's, a, it's an unqualified statement. Forty days in Nineveh will be re- destroyed and I think what we begin to recognize on, on a theological level is that there are statements that are made, right, that have unstated qualifications to them. Right? That, you know, Jonah didn't say this, but within the mind of God, there are already unstated qualifications that when the Ninevites did repent 
and they turned to the, to the Lord or they, or they repented from their evil deeds, then God relented from what He was going to do. And as we'll see in a few minutes, why did He relent from what He was going to do? It's because of His character, His propensity to be, to be merciful that He does that. Now, there are lots of ways that philosophical theology, that the classic Reformed tradition has wrestled with this particular question. And, I mean, for example, like primary causes and secondary causes. I mean, there, there are a lot of ways that might help us get by this. But I think what we have to do, in light of this God changing His mind thing, is to recognize two things. And maybe just leave them in tension. I'm okay with that. And if you're not, we can talk about it. But the one thing is, the, the one thing that we hold in tension is, without a doubt, The character of God is witnessed to in the whole of the Bible is that He is sovereign, that He is in control, and that He is moving all things according to the counsel and desires of His own will. I mean, you cannot read the Bible without getting that portrait of God, that God is moving all things to the purposes of His own will, and He does not sit on His throne twiddling His thumbs, wondering, what are they going to do next? And then, in this, that, that, that's not the portrait of our, of our God. He is in complete control. He is sovereign. But at the same time, and this is the other hand that will leave it in tension, we also recognize that God, by His own self-determination to be the God who He is, has involved Himself in space and time in such a way to be in a dynamic relationship with His people. That is real. Prayer really affects things. Uh, we can't always figure out how that relates to the primary reality of God. We don't always figure that out. I mean, welcome to your humanity and mine too. I mean, we're not going to figure it all out in a nice, easy syllogism. A equals B equals C. We live with those realities in tension that God is sovereign. He is good. He is to be trusted. He's working all things to the counsel of His own purposes. And at the same time, He has determined Himself to be in relationship and covenant with His people. And that brings along with it all the dynamic that we see in time and space. Relenting, changing, moving. Right? All of it is in His sovereign plan. And yet from our perspective as well, we see that kind of interactive relational dynamic as well. He is in relationship with us. Right? And so these are, you know, I, I, I don't know where you are on this, and, and maybe this just I, this is where I am. I'm happier now than I think I was 10 years ago to allow certain things to just stand in tension, what might be called antinomies, right? To our mind, we cannot put these two together in a neat, um, in, in a neat clean, logical way. But the Bible confesses them, the Bible says them, and I don't want to let go of one in the face of the other. I need, I want to hold on, on to both of them. And I, I, I don't know if that's okay with you, but I, increasingly that's becoming um, oh, oh, okay with me. Oh, you want to ask some questions about that? Bueller? Yeah. <laughs> some pepper. Anything? Oh, no, okay. Save them. I know, I know you, you probably have them. Let, let's, let's, let's move on here. Now, back to Exodus. So we, we saw last week, great, one of the best scenes in the Bible, one of the most important scenes in the Bible, uh, this uh, encounter between, with Moses on Mount Sinai. And then here God is on, with Moses communing on Mount Sinai. He's giving him the Torah. He's giving him the law. And then God breaks their conversation and He says, go down to your people because they've made this golden calf. It's the golden calf episode. And what, what, what happened? They came. They said, we, we, want, we want to worship the, God who's, the gods who's, who brought us out of Egypt. And, and they bring their best to, um, to Aaron. He makes a, a golden calf out of the fire. 
Aaron, if you remember later, tries to justify it to Moses by saying, I don't know, I threw the thing in, just jumped out, right? Um, and, uh, and, and, this, and this really is the beginning of a long season in Israel's life of idolatry. We're going to see that. But what we see happening in Exodus chapter 32, and this is one of the beauties, I think, of the Pentateuch, that it comes to us as a five-book reality, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It comes to us in its five-fold form with individual books within that five-fold form, but they also mutually interpret one another. We read the Pentateuch as, as a whole. And what do we see now with uh, the Israelites uh, building this calf and, and falling into a sinful pattern? What we see is that they are Adam. Here we see it again. Genesis 3, the fall, has its ongoing implications in the life of God's people. I mean, what has happened to Israel? Think about their position now. They have been redeemed. They've been brought out of slavery. They, are, they have a physical, sacramental presence of God in their midst with the fire and the cloud. In other words, they haven't been just left to wander on their own. They have seen the mighty hand of God providing for them as they walked on the dry land with the sea like walls on their right and left side. I mean, they have seen God do that for them. And now they're in the wilderness and they've seen God provide for them with manna. In other words, He's, he's provided for their physical needs as well. I mean, God has been good to them. They have known the gracious character of Eden. And yet, in, in, in spite or despite that, we see them falling in, into sin. They, they are working out the implications of the Adamic fall. Um, this is a, a quote from Karl Barth. I was reading Barth this morning on this. Here you see the Israelite knows himself to be true himself, what he has to detest in Genesis 3 concerning all of humanity. So all of humanity is shut up in the reality of sin in Genesis 3. We read that in Romans 5 as well, don't we? Paul taps into that theology. We are all born in Adam. We're all born in sin. And now we see in the narratives of the Old Testament that Israel herself is wrapped up in that same Adamic reality. Given the goodness of God, given the grace of God, all the benefits of being in covenant relationship with God. And despite that, they continue to follow their own ways. It's, just, it's something, isn't it? I mean, that's one of the powers of the doctrine of original sin. We are all born in sin, but we also recognize that Adam represents all of us. I mean, I've had in some very, you know, not good way, or not very, very helpful way, explain this to my son, you know, my, my boys, about the fall in sin. You know, yes, Adam's sin has an effect on all of us, but let's not get too sort of hotty-totty when it comes to Adam. Because the truth, or at least the witness of the biblical narrative, as we see in Exodus 32 and 33, is we were Adam too. In other words, if we would have been there, we would have done the same thing, right? And, and here is Israel doing the same thing. We're wrapped up in this, in, this reality of, in this reality of sin. And so now the golden calf becomes paradigmatic of Israel's propensity of Israel's proclivity toward toward a sinful pattern. I was reading on Saturday um, when it was raining. We had a great weekend of rain, haven't we? Um, so the boys were watching something, I don't know. And um, I probably should know, but there's my parenting for you. Uh, um, boys were watching something, and I was on the porch uh, drinking some coffee and reading through Kings. 
And, and listen, and so you remember what happens, right? You have Saul, then you have David, then you have Solomon, and then you have the great divide, and things are never the same again. You have Jeroboam that goes to the northern kingdom, and Rehoboam in the southern kingdom. And remember what happens? Rehoboam comes, and, and uh, his, the older counselors that were with his father Solomon came to him and said, listen, lighten the burden on your people, and they will follow you and they'll serve you, which just seems to be such sage advice, right? But then his friends, his peers came to him and said, they need to know that you are the king and no one else. You tighten down the fist. And when they did that, it was turned into mutiny. It was bad. So Jeroboam, northern kingdom, there he goes. And listen to what happens with Jeroboam. Um, So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, as the king had said, come to me on the third day. And the king answered the people harshly. He started to talk to them about um, what was going on. I wanted to read this to you. Oh, if I can find it. Oh, here it is, right? Verse 25. Then Jeroboam, northern kingdom, built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim. And he resided there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And then Jeroboam said to himself, Now the kingdom may well revert to the house of David, northern kingdom here, if this people continues to go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord of Jerusalem, the heart of this people will turn again to their master, King Rehoboam of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam of Judah. So he said, if, they, if, they, if, if the center of worship stays down in Jerusalem and the people from this northern kingdom who are following me continue to go down there, it's going to sway their heart. So we need to set up a religious center up here as well in the northern kingdom. And listen to what he does. So he took counsel, the king, And he made two calves of gold. He said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's something, isn't it? This golden calf episode that happens out in the wilderness continues to exert a kind of idolatrous presence in the northern kingdom's life. Do you remember how many good kings there were in the northern kingdom? Goose egg, really, right? None. Except for maybe Jehu. Jehu, right? Um, let me read to you about Jehu in Second Kings. By the way, you, you talk about some interesting and salacious reading. Read Kings sometimes. Now that's rated R stuff, no doubt. Um, but listen to what happens here in verse 28, describing Jehu. By the way, Jehu was somewhat a good king, right? He, he was, but, but listen to what it said about him. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he caused Israel to commit. So Jehu comes in, massive religious reform in the northern kingdom. He wipes out the Canaanite gods of of the Baals. He removes them, all those those, those centers of worship. So for the sake of worshiping Yahweh. And it seems to be like Jehu is a godly king of the north. But listen how he's described. But he did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, which he caused Israel to commit. What were those sins? The golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. So in other words, Jehu was willing to tear tear on all the Canaanite infiltration, the the infiltration of the Canaanite gods with the various Baalim, the Baals. But those two golden calves... We'll let those, we're going to let those stay, right? So these golden calves become paradigmatic for the sins of Jeroboam, the sins of the northern kingdom. And we know, don't we, 
that God is patient, He's long-suffering, and I think this has a great deal to do with that very good question that was asked last week about visiting the sins onto the third and the fourth generation that we see in Exodus 34. That is without doubt a commentary on the history of Israel, especially the northern kingdom. That the sin perpetuates itself. The sin of Jeroboam went down to the second generation and then the third generation. And in time, because that sin was never repented of, the golden calves remained there. There was never never a, a northern king who walked in the ways of the Lord. In time, God's patience had its limit and the Assyrians come in and they destroy them 722 B.C. It's interesting, isn't it, to step back and begin to see that the Pentateuch, the historical books of the Old Testament, they feed onto one another thematically that you begin to step back in the morass of all the particularity and difficulty that's there, you begin to see these common themes that show up. And here's a big one out of Exodus 32 and 33. That when the people of God pursued their own idols, that those idols have a knock-on effect, that the implications of that have a knock-on effect for future generations who continue uh, to walk in that way. But we see in Exodus 34, now there's the great reversal. The mercy of God is given prominence over against really His severity. The two of them, neither one of them are to be denied. But the mercy of God is given its prominence. If you go back to the Decalogue in Exodus chapter 20, you shall have no other gods before me. Anyone who makes another God, I will visit the sins on them, right? How does it work in Exodus 20? The severity of God comes first. If you do this, I'm going to punish you. And the second part is the mercy of God. But when you get to Exodus 34, that paradigmatic reflection and exposition on the name and the character of Yahweh, when we get there, that particular movement is completely reversed. And now the lead is the merciful character of God on the far side of the golden calf incident. Isn't it something? This is the theology. We we know this is infused with the whole Bible. But this is the character of God as displayed in the discrete character of the Old Testament witness itself. That God knows Himself. He determines Himself to be a merciful and gracious God on the far side of the people's sin and failure. That's where Exodus 34 is placed. He's determined Himself to be a God whose yes is definitive, even in the face of the people's no. You've denied me. You've been unfaithful to me. But I will continue to hold out my promises to you and I will not let your no or my no of judgment be the final word. My yes is going to be the final word. And this is what happens when we get to the minor prophets. Can you, uh, if you have a Bible, um, oh, time is going. But if you have a Bible, listen to the way Micah ends. I, I, this is, I've spent some time with Micah. Um, verse 18 of Micah chapter 7. Who is a God like you? Now, see if, you, if any of these ring a bell. Pardoning iniquity. Passing over to the transgressions of the remnant of your possession. He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in showing clemency. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. But what is Micah drawing on here? Micah is drawing on these attributes, the character traits of God that you see back in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. In fact, 
Some of them are carbon copy, if you relate to Hebrew, one on top of the other. The character of God as expressed in Exodus 34, 6 and 7 shapes and frames the way in which we understand God or are meant to understand God in the whole of the minor prophets. And here we come to the end of the book of Micah, which is in the middle of the book of the twelve. There are twelve minor prophets, so I think it's stationed there in the middle is important. We come to the end of that book and it tells the people of God to trust in the character of who God is. Do you see this here? Who is a God like you? That's a play on Hebrew, right? It's a play on Micah's name, Micah, right? In Hebrew, Micah means who is like Yahweh, right? And here we come to the end, and how does the end of my, the book of Micah end? It's a play on his own name. Who is a God like you? Who is like you? No one is like you. Well, why is no one like you? Because his propensity and his character is a character that is moving always toward his grace and His mercy, even in light of the fullness of His judgment. His judgment is not His final word. What's happened in the Minor Prophets? What's happened is the fullness of the Golden Calf episode has landed on the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. The Northern Kingdom has fallen away in 722, but to the Assyrians, the Southern Kingdom is going to be destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And the reason why is because of the Golden Calf. It's because of the breaking of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Um, I wanted to read this to you. We'll come back to this in Micah, but listen to how Hosea ends. Um, I think the ending of Hosea, again, I wouldn't go to the guillotine over this, but I think the ending of Hosea is a hermeneutical guide. It's an interpretive guide. It's a set of lenses to help us understand the import and the thrust of the whole of the Minor Prophets, not just Hosea. So it helps us see the whole of this unified book of the Twelve. And listen to how the whole book of Hosea ends. Those who are wise understand these things. Those who are discerning, they know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them but transgressors stumble in them. Do you know what the driving issue in the whole of the Minor Prophets is? The driving issue that the people of God are wrestling with is this. What do we do now that we have this understanding and confession of who God is, and yet nationally we have experienced this calamity? Or let's put it on our level. How do we follow and continue to follow after Yahweh when what I believe about Him has come into direct conflict with what we're actually experiencing? I mean, they said psalms in the temple, like Psalm 46 and Psalm 48 and Psalm 77, songs about Zion and the unassailable character of Zion and the nations will tremble before Zion. And here the temple now is pillaged. It's been destroyed. It's gone. The best of, of our men in the northern and the southern kingdom have been deported to Babylon. And then later on, a, a whole group of them go down to Egypt. I mean, our whole national identity, our sacramental presence, our, our symbol that gives us our worldview, the temple, it's gone. It's been destroyed. And what do, we, what do we do now? And the prophets come in to help the people of God to see, listen, number one, your theology was too thin. It's too thin. You had a robust Zion theology that was true. Zion is unassailable. But you forgot this other part. 
You shall have no other gods before me. You forgot that part. And there was a real edge to that part that you forgot to listen to. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 7, Do not say anymore, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord this is. Don't say that anymore. Why? Because their theology, which was true, was only a half-truth. It forgot the other side of the justice and the holiness of God. He does not share his bed with anyone else. You'll have no other gods before me. That word jealousy, I think, conjures up some negative images. Marilyn Robinson actually talks about this in the book that I was mentioning at the beginning. But this, this concept of jealousy can, I don't know, can seem rather petty to us, doesn't it? I mean, you think about, um, I mean, it's not always a compliment to say to a young, maybe it's your son or your daughter who's dating someone and the person that they're dating is jealous. He tends to have a jealous streak in him. That sounds rather petty. In other words, he's insecure, right? Or she's insecure. You need to, you need to be careful about that. Maybe a better word is, um, and Robinson suggests this, maybe a better word is impassioned. He's zealous. He loves his people. And he's impassioned for them to follow in the way that is best for them. And so their theology was too thin. It was only one-sided. And the second part, too, was their view of God had been so eclipsed that the prophets come in to remind them, listen, this is the character of who your God is. Let the wise discern these things. What is it they need to discern? And the theme that shows up in Joel chapter 2, the theme that shows up in Jonah chapter 4, the, 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 the theme that shows up in Micah chapter 7 and Nahum chapter 1, is that God is merciful and He is severe. He is to be trusted. And those who repent and turn toward Him will never be met with anything other than His grace and good pleasure. Ever. That's the thrust of the minor prophets. Look at the end of Jonah. Or I'll tell you about the end of Jonah. Um, So you know, we never really know until chapter 4 of Jonah why Jonah hit the road and fled to Tarshish. It's one of these interesting thought experiments about maybe the benefit of reading books not just from front to back, but from back to front. And and here here we come to Jonah chapter 4. And uh, what had happened? God had just relented from His evil way. He said, I'm not going to bring the calamity on them because of, because of their repentance. I'm going to show them my mercy. And then chapter 4, we read this. Jonah was very, it was very displeasing to Jonah. And he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still in my own country? This is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew... Now, see if these terms ring a bell for you. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life. (laughs) I mean, do do you see what he's appealing to? He's appealing to the Medot of Exodus 34, 6 and 7. That same characterization of God is what has ticked Jonah off. This is exactly why I fled to Tarshish. Well, why, Jonah? Because I knew that your character is to be gracious. Now, one of the beautiful things about biblical narrative, and, and you might disagree with me on this, but I, I, I hold pretty strongly to, to, to this interpretive point. A lot of times, narratives like this, narratives like the offering of Isaac in Genesis chapter 22, don't give us the kind of dramatic background that we really want to have, the details that we want to know, the psychological details that you and I want to know. Right? I, I want to know... What it is about God's character that made Jonah so angry. 
And there are multiple options that have been given, right? He's xenophobic. He just doesn't like enemies. Or um, maybe, right, maybe this is a, a matter of his own personal self-defense. He knows why prophets are deemed good or false prophets. False prophets say something and then it doesn't happen, right? And what did, Moses, what did Jonah say in chapter 3? 40 days and you're done. And now it's not happening. I mean, maybe that's why. He's, I mean, there are multiple options for why Jonah might be upset. And we're not really given insight into any of them in this text. Maybe to allow the options to be open. And maybe to allow us all in our various places to find ourselves with Jonah in the narrative saying, hmm, I can understand from this perspective. In other words, we're, we're sucked in because you and I are Jonah too, right? And by the way, Israel was meant to read this book of Jonah and, and identify, which we're, we are Jonah. We are that, that character. But it was the gracious character of God that was extended to the nations, rooted in His mercy, that really upset Jonah and made him angry. Um, this is the character of our God. The character of our God is to be merciful and is to be gracious even to those whom at the end of the day we think maybe in our private thoughts they just don't really deserve it. Um, one final thing, and then we'll take some questions. Exodus 34, which is the character of God is merciful and severe, which is so located in the context of the, of the golden calf, which shows up again in the minor prophets in a robust way. It's a, it's a red thread that one can trace throughout the whole of the book of the Twelve, the minor prophets. It also pushes us in another direction. The minor prophets push the people of God toward future hope, toward eschatology. Now, eschatology is a word that probably should scare you, right? Because if you turn on TB, no, well, not the Catholic one, but whatever these Christian stations are at 1 o'clock in the morning, you're going to see oil fields, fields and fighter jets in the Middle East. And some, someone's going to start talking about prophecy in a way. Maybe not you, but at least me. It makes me get a little bit nervous. Right? Um, and so I, there's, a lot of, you know, there's, there's a lot of harebrained ideas, for lack of a better term, when it comes to, to future prophecy and eschatology. But eschatology from an Old Testament perspective is really rather simple. God in the future is going to break in again. Right? He did so in Jesus. Right? That's the surprise. What they expected to happen at the end of time actually happens right smack dab in the middle of time. We are in the age of the resurrection right now. That, that's, the, that's the theological thought of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. When will the age of the resurrection be? When will the future eschatological day be? Answer, right now. Because Jesus is raised from the dead. He's the first fruits. We are in the age of the resurrection. And we await its consummation however that plays out. Right? But what is this eschatological push that happens in the book of the Twelve? and the Minor Prophets. It's a push to continue on in faithfulness despite the current complexity of the reality that they find themselves in. To continue on in faithfulness. Why? Because of the character of God. The assumed character of God that's rooted in Israel's past traditions in Exodus that finds itself in the book of the Twelve and that we can assume and trust will be the case in the future as well. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Right? The God that we meet at that future day, when we see Him there, because He is here, there already and we're there already in some profound metaphysical sense. We are already there in Christ. I, well, that's another lesson. The, the true you, by the way, is not you sitting here. 
The true you is the one safely hid already in Jesus. And when those good things you do every once in a while pop up, that's only popping up because of your full humanity in Jesus. It's like, oh, wow, that's, that's, that's really good. Um, well, why is that really good? It's good because you're in Jesus. And can't you think about the beauty of this when we're in heaven? Now the fullness of that will be exposed and, and without, without the delay and without the holding back of, of sin. But where the minor prophets take us is to trust and to hope in that future eschatological day. To trust and to hope in the character of God that who He was and who He is is who He will be. The merciful God who's shown us His mercy ultimately and finally in the person and work of Jesus. All right, let's, let's talk about this a while. Boy, that was a lot at you. Um, Chariot rage. Um, um, yeah. Any, anybody want to ask a question? Well, that's because we're all Adam. And he will be merciful. Okay, thank you. Yep. <laughs>